Adam Ferrara is my guest today. He is a comedian, an actor, a podcaster, and he was the host of Top Gear for six or seven seasons. Plus, he's had some other interesting jobs he's going to tell us all about. And this is one of those easy episodes for me where I just get to sit back and let the guests go. And my goal, of course, with these podcasts is to entertain, educate, and inspire people. And I think we accomplished a lot of that on this episode. So a lot of great stories and wisdom from Adam Ferrara coming right up. All right. looks like you got a professional setup because you have your own podcast. I do. Yeah, I do. And I like your I like your backdrop. This is actually the exterior of Abbey Road. Whoa. Yeah, you can't see it says Abbey Road under that light, but this is the exterior of Abbey Road. How did you get to set up over there? That is Abbey Road desk studio three. The tube desk, I think it was, I'll say 1969 before they went solid state, but that's the desk they had in Studio 3 that they, the Beatles did Tomorrow Never Knows on, and Pink Floyd did a bunch of stuff on that as well, and that's it. Um, and then that's just a bunch of TV shit I got. Oh, so it's like, those are replicas? Oh, no, this is a, uh, they're both murals. This is a mural. Oh, oh, okay, you fooled me. Okay, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, so that's my, this is my little, and the name of my studio is called Abbey Normal Recording Studios. <laughs> that's a reference to Frankenstein. Yeah. Young Frankenstein. Frankenstein and Abbey Road, so. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, so t tell me about that, uh, The because you're a big Beatles fan, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I, I, when I was a kid, I, I learned how to play, uh, I, I took guitar lessons, and my guitar teacher was a real Beatles fan, and he, he's the one that like, kind of opened up my mind a little bit, because when I was, uh, in my formative years, the edge was punk, um, so it was, yeah, it was punk and disco, neither one, I'm like, well, disco, that, that four on the floor, bang, 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 drum beat, not really my thing, funk I like, because funk is on the one, you know, bump. So punk that like, um, and punk. I wasn't that angry, you know. And, and <laughs> look, I I know three chords too, you know, but I'm not shoving a clothespin through my face. So, um, uh, so I went backwards because my guitar teacher was teaching me the Beatles songs as we were playing, and as as his love of the Beatles transferred onto me. Um, and, um, then as I just got older, I just started reading books and listening to the music and it's just what spoke to me. You know, every, everybody has their own muse and, uh, that was one of mine. Was, do you think the, how the Beatles made music, is there some sort of crossover with how you make comedy, like the creative process at all? Cause I, I think like, and I hear this with a lot of musicians as they say like, Oh, the, the songs, they just come to me. Yeah. Is that how jokes like, come? Bits, some bits do some bits come fully formed. Um, and, uh, I will tell you not, I, I would aspire to have my uh, my 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 work be uh, on the level of the Beatles. I'll tell you who I liken my stuff to a lot is Pete Townsend of the Who, only because. Uh, and I had Glenn Johns on my podcast who produced Let It Be, and uh, he produced uh, Who's Next. He produced My Generation. He produced uh, Zeppelin One. Um, he produced the Eagles. So I had him on the podcast and I was talking to him. Uh, but the reason I'm sorry, my ADD is raging today, Chuck. So <laughs> no, you're fine. I, uh, the reason that I identify a lot with Pete Towns is I have these grand ideas and the jokes usually are connected to this grand idea that usually falls apart. Like, uh, one of my, I think my third special was my third special was called funny as hell. And mm -hmm. part of that stand up was supposed to be the narrative that weaved through a, a, a movie. 
So the, the stand-up was used as the narrative. I never got the financing to do it. it. It all fell apart. So I got a call to do a special. I go, well, I got these pieces. I'll put this together. How uh, did you do the part? Is that the one with the where you do the opera bit? That was really uh, like a well, like I would assume that took a long time to practice that. And like, that's not something you just do on the spur of the moment. No, no. The opera bit, I think, was it was either on the album Unconditional the special unconditional or the special hmm. it's scary in here. I think it's on it's scary in here. Yeah. Isn't that your latest? That's the latest one that's yeah. out on, yeah. on YouTube is called it's scary in here. Now the opera bit was just, you know, that that's just a little song. And, and now see, but the thinking and the delivery system of comedy and just the way we, we get our information now is it moved from albums to singles. You know, if you look at the way the music industry, it went from the True. big thing. And the album was just like, well, we throw some shit mm -hmm. together. Yeah. Then in England, the Beatles would actually release singles and an album. So you'd have two singles and an album of songs that weren't on the album. The United States, we didn't do that. Mm. So just the production of the music and the production of uh, of um, the output of the artist was was uh, in great demand, which it is now. But now it's like singles because now when I write a bit, I don't need it to connect it to something bigger. You know, I can write a bit to be in that that thirty second minute bit and make it a complete thought uh, and move on from there, my, which kind of lends itself to my stuff too. M most of the bits I really like, they're about 30 seconds to a minute. It's not just a joke. Um, and the bigger ones I have, like I got a, a bit, uh, an anxiety, a bit about the anxiety derby is the name of the bit. And it's about two and a half minutes. I did it on, what did I do? Oh, I did it on the James Corden show. And uh, then when they, I was, they asked me to do the show, I said, great, I like to do the show, but I want to do this bit. And this bit's like two and a half minutes, so it's going to be half the set. And they said, fine, show up Tuesday. You know, so was, so building around that to get to that bit. So in answer to your question, um, I right now, I'm thinking more of uh, how, the, how the bits connect, but also breaking them apart to use for social media. Yeah. So before you did the music and before you did comedy, I mean, you had some other stuff that you did. You have a degree in finance and you were like worked in a kindergarten school. Can't and you balance my checkbook, Chuck. Can't yeah. balance my checkbook. <laughs> so did, did, but did like doing the fences, you did all this other stuff. Did that, did that stuff help you kind of find the path of comedy? Or was it just like trial and error? Like, Hey, I don't want to do this. I'll try something else. I don't want to do this. Or did you learn things from doing those jobs? Oh, any, any kind of experience. And, the the one thing that I, I did realize, it's funny you, you brought this up. The one thing I did realize is every experience comes into use. You just don't know how or when or in what form. Um, my work ethic came from my dad because my dad owned kitchens and bathrooms. He, he, he built kitchens. He owned a company that yeah. he did kitchens and bathrooms. He was a plumber. And my, my grandfather was a plumber. And he like, I can do better than more than this. Not better, but more. So he would do the plumbing and then design everything and and he started working with my mom and they, they built this business together and there's no paycheck unless you get up in the morning. So my father got up in the dark. He came home in the dark. So that's uh, I got my work ethic from my dad. Um, and then just being in an environment where you had to work with other people to find out how you fit in, you know, in the family and like the fence company. You know, I was doing everything. I was driving forklifts. I was driving trucks. I was uh, and I wasn't good at any of it. I was, you know, building. <laughs> Not good at any of this stuff. I love cars, Chuck. I can't yeah. fix them. I love cars. <laughs> my dad loves them. And yeah. I was working on the car one day and I was doing my best, you know, but the oil spilling, blood spurting, wrenches are falling. My father took a long drag off his lucky, put his hand on my shoulder and said, son, you're going to have to get a job and work at something the rest of your life. This ain't it. <laughs>
So <laughs> your brothers were were uh, better at that stuff. They became chefs. Is that what happened? Yes, my brothers. Yeah, yeah, but they again the mechanical gene. My brothers have a maybe a little bit more than me, but you know, I my father really had. It. My father built our house. I came home one day off the school bus. We lived on a corner. And my father, we heard my mom and dad fighting because my father was building the house and he wanted a circular driveway. So we heard him fighting up in the, in their, in their bedroom. Why do you need a circular driveway, Joe? Cause I don't want to back up. Okay. So I come home from school one day, I get off the bus. My father rented a bulldozer and he's cutting the driveway into the front lawn. And I ran off the bus. I jumped on the bulldozer. I go, how you doing, Pop? He goes, how you doing, kid? I go, what are we doing? He's like, we're, we're making a driveway today. I said, where did you learn this? He's like, what learned? This is what we're doing today. And he's on a bulldozer. And he's grading the soil and cutting the driveway himself. This is before YouTube. You can't just look this. Because I know a lot of people do use YouTube. I feel like that's cheating. He just did a trial and error. He just rented a bulldozer. I don't know how the hell he did it, but he did it. And the driveway looked great, you know? Okay. So, so, so I, think, I think I got my work ethic. I know I got my work ethic from mm-hmm. my dad. Um, I learned how to, I learned, I, 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 I read people's, the words that are coming to me, but as, cause every comic has a spidey sense, you know, every comic has, can feel a room mm-hmm. and uh, most of us are, um, want to relieve tension, you know, in the room, uh, in the family unit. That was most of the comics I've spoken to on my podcast and guys I know and just, you know, comics I've known my whole life are just like, you know, I would be the release valve, you know, uh, in the family. Uh, and and I, also, yeah, weren't you bullied too? Isn't that part of it? That yeah. you use the humor as a defense? Yeah, on the school bus. You know, if you're funny on the school bus, well, out there laughing, they can't hit you, you know? So, and if they're laughing and people like you, you know, like, I think Carlin had the line, don't hit that. It's bad luck to hit that guy, you know? So, <laughs> That yeah, kind of stuff kept you. It, it 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 gave you a form of identity of where and how you fit in, um, and it very much protection on the school bus. Yeah, yeah. So then, music though is really the first time you get up on stage, and you know that's when you're like, okay, I feel alive. This is where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be on stage. It just it took a while to figure out the comedy. So with the music, you were in a band in college. What kind of music was that uh, band? Our band stuff. We know. We, we, we knew, we knew 11 songs and we played Born to be Wild twice. We had no record for that was <laughs> But you, did you open for Lionel Richie? Is that what I heard? I did stand up for an opening for Lionel Oh, okay. So not, not with the, yeah. the band. So the band was not very successful. No, it was a bar band. It was a college bar band. Uh, hmm. But, but it, 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 again, well, this ain't it. <laughs> you know, uh, but being on stage gave me that. Oh, okay. I like this feeling. And then when I did stand up for the first time on an open mic on Long Island, where I'm from, I got that ping and I went, Oh, I don't know where this is going to end, but I belong here for now. Was that the, the first time? Cause I thought the first, like I've done stand up before the first time, usually for open mic or something, don't you usually get your ass kicked? Isn't it usually people boo you? And- uh, here's, here's what happened to me. July 13th, 1988, Wednesday night, Eastside Comedy Club, Long Island, New York. I sign up for the open mic. They tell me to be there at 8 o'clock. I make the mistake of telling my mother. My mother was the original Twitter. She would tell (laughs) everybody. The whole neighborhood showed up, right? So everyone is there. The place is sold out, and I'm on. And I wrote some stuff down. I was going to try. I'm nervous as hell. I go on stage, and somebody says something. One of my cousins said something, and I just – answered him back and started riffing. I didn't know what I was doing, Chuck. That's see, that's the talent though. Cause I can't do, most people cannot riff. Yeah. Well, I can't, I didn't know I had the ability and I, the conditions were set where I knew my cousin was like, would you shut up this people here for God's sake? Look, 
Aunt Jerry came all the way out. She don't leave the house, you know, whatever I said, you know, and, she, and you know, she's not going to stay to the end of the set. All right, we got to go. You know, that's going to happen. And they're all laughing. So it was like my house after Thanksgiving. And before I knew it, five minutes were over and I killed and I got that high. I got, yes, I got the hit. And that's where I went. Okay. I've never felt this before. I think in further experience, it was the first time I experienced the integrity of being, you know, say, think, feel, and do is all lined up at once. And you're just there and you're just open and it's coming through you. That's the first time I, I felt it. And I realized very early on that, okay, this is my state of grace. This is where I know I'm not thinking. I know that, but, and I know that that's how to make this work and I could do it. Can't do it in my life, but I can do it here. It's like, I just, uh, I just spoke to, um, Colin Quinn. I just had him, uh, uh, on my show and, and one of the things when he writes, he's, he writes to understand, you know, he writes to his one man shows to understand and that that's the impetus for him to attack a subject. Um, I don't know. I'll take an idea on stage and I don't know how I really feel about it until I'm in front of an audience, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, I don't know if I need the reflection. I don't know if I need to get out of my own way. I just know my state of grace is in front of an audience, not doing material. I just know that that feeling and in most comics when they're riffing, will kind of tell you the same thing. I don't want to speak for everybody, but it's that feeling we're chasing. Yeah. Cause the riffing though, just, I mean, it's so amazing when you guys, comedians can do that like so quickly. Like I think it's, I can't remember which special it is. It's one of the ones I watch and somebody coughs and you just immediately like, did you, I don't know if you guys have some kind of canned responses for things like that. Or did you just think of that immediately? Cause that's in your special. You left that in. You didn't cut that part out. I have which one. Oh gosh. I think it was, I feel like it, I thought it was scary. Uh, what is it? What is it? I, I'll be honest with you. You don't, when you're not thinking you are the best and you know, there's, there's certain lines you can use after, you know, you, you do have stuff that's in the library, but the best like you have comebacks for uh, hecklers and things like that. Yeah. You got, you got a little bit you can draw from, but for the most part, it's spur of the moment because if you're doing it correctly, you're in the moment, you know, you know, if, if, and correctly is a, is a subjective term, but no, there's certain things you can say, the stock lines or stuff that you've done before that works. You know, I, I know that one of the, one of the writing devices I use on stage is uh, I'll take, I'll mix my set up. I'll, I'll take two bits here. I know I want to get from this bit to this bit and I'll go into the audience and I know I'm going to go out of the audience. Either something will happen. I'll draw me into the audience or I'll use the end of that bit to ask a question of somebody in the audience, knowing I got to get from here to here. So whatever laughs I get along the way, wrap them up and make it that point or use that point in your head to drag you there. And none of this stuff is conscious. I just know that that's where I want to go. You throw the intention out into the heads up display and then all of a sudden things just get bigger. Hmm, that's I, cool. It's hard to explain. It's like Michael Jordan explained when he's in the zone, the rim yeah. big bucket. And this is like, I want to go here. I want to go there. And you just shut your mind up. It's the only time I can really trust anything. <laughs> you know, it's like you just trust the intention. It, it will happen. So that's, that's really cool. I, have, I don't have it in my life. I don't trust anybody. All right, Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> but there are some comedians that, that aren't good at riffing, right? That have to be more structured. Like, I think you talked about Carlin. You're a big fan of him, obviously yeah. open for him, but you really liked it. He had that structure. He, he didn't riff as much, right? Carlin, Carlin, uh, didn't say it to me, but said, I don't improvise. I memorize, you know? 
Hmm. And Colin Quinn does that too. Colin, I mean, but Colin Quinn can riff, you know, but but he he's got to write it down. Memorization is the hardest thing for him. And the only reason I keep bringing up Colin is I just spoke to him, so he's present in my mind. But one of my heroes was um, Chris Rush, which was a guy he's since passed away, um, and he was a, a comic that was just brilliant. I mean, you just give him a subject and he was gone, and I was like. Your jaws on the floor. Like, where's this guy channeling this from? Because this isn't coming out of a human being. So, Chris Rush. Why have I? Ne- I know a lot of comedians. How have I never heard of that guy? Chris Rush started with Carlin when Carlin was in the suit. <laughs> okay, so he's real old school. Then. He's, he's dead now. But, yeah. but I got to know him when I was a uh, when I was a kid starting out. Um, I have, in fact, I got this. He died. I got this on my desk. Chris Rush. That's okay. CD. Uh, I mean, that's his cassette tape, but that was at the bitter end in New York. And uh, yeah, he was a, a genius. Um, and when I was a kid, uh, I started doing comedy. The reason I worked a lot, Chuck, was I had a car. <laughs> I lived on Long Island. I had a car and I had a work ethic. You know, my, I would I would get um, one of the most honest booking agents I ever met in my life was a guy named John Shula. He used to book these bars, these shitty bars in Connecticut. And he would call me up. Adam, look, I got a gig. It's far away. The crowd sucks. It's not a lot of money. You want it? Yeah. So I would take it. And I would have to pick up the headliners uh, at the improv when the improv was in the city. It was on the west side. So I was on time. I was Uber before Uber. I was on time. The car was clean. There was water in it for the headliners. I pick them up and you're supposed to drop them off. That's the deal. And then they take a cab home. Well, I pick them up for work. I stuck them time. I didn't wreck the room. I worked a little cleaner than I usually work when I'm headlining because I know nobody really wants to follow a dirty comic. And my job is to set it up. So I knew what my job was and stick to your time. And then when we drop them off, I was supposed to drop them off at the improv. I go, you're going to get out of my car to get into another car to go home. I'll take you home. Save the cab fare. Where do you live? So they would call up and say, I want to work with Adam. So that's why I got so much stage time because that was important to me. And just being, just working for a living, I knew what, you know, I knew what the responsibility or I knew how to identify what my job is in the bigger picture. That's so smart. So how long, what is the time frame of you like grinding basically? Cause, and at what point did you I'm decide for the big break to happen? <laughs> Chuck? What the fuck? What are you talking about? You hosted top gear. You got rescue me nurse. Jackie you got yeah. all these specials. You do the roasts. Yeah. I'm very fortunate to be able to work. Uh, but there is no one, big break as far as grinding the nice thing about about when i started and and when most guys uh, guys and i mean guys and girls most comics start um that's what you want so it's not work you know it's you want to be there you want i was i was haunting the clubs on nights i weren't working just to be in that environment that was the pull of it pulls you there it's like this job is it's not a job as much as it's a calling you know and when you're you're younger and and you have that desire and your life isn't complicated, that's where you want to be. So the grind is not really a grind because it's what you want. It's no, but I just mean like where the point where you like you're making a live, you're not having to do side jobs and fence companies and all that this other. Very fortunate that happened very early. Um, it happened very early because it was a time when it could happen that early there uh, wasn't that many comedians back then right that many comedians tv just found out it was really cheap to produce and so did the bar owners so i was making a living I, but i always kept my day job because uh, i didn't want to quit i'll tell you wow i quit um wait which one which day job my last straight job was i was a dishwasher at a corporate office of a savings bank <laughs> 
the Long Island. Even with the, was this after you had the finance degree? Yeah, I got out of college. I started selling binoculars okay. at boat shows, and I was doing stand. I was, I was, I, I always worked for my dad. I always ran tools. I always was on a job site. I was always okay. working for my dad when he needed me, um, and when I needed him. Um, but then I started. Okay, I got to make. I got out with this degree. What am I going to do? So I got a sales job selling binoculars at boat shows for an optical company. And I went, shit, if I'm going to be on the road, I'll be on the road doing stand-up. But this is bullshit. I'm not doing this. So I did that. I started doing stand-up. I, I got a job at Defense Company, um, which I've had all through high school. That was another place I could always go and pick up work. Mm-hmm. At Defense Company. I could always work on my hands, even though I wasn't good at it. So I could always do that. Then the last straight job I had was I needed something during the day so I can go out at night and do stand-up. And I didn't need anything. I needed a job that once I left, the job was done. So there was the Long Island Savings Bank had its corporate offices on Route 110 in Huntington, where I'm from. They needed a dishwasher. I said, okay. I applied for the job and I got it. And they're looking at me, go, you're a dishwasher? I go, that's me. That's me. Spiffy Ferrari, they call me. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't think, you don't think I'm above this. I've got a degree in finance. I'm a a stand-up comedian. I'm too good to be, you're like, I'm just going to do something that pays the bills. Nine o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon, it's a bank job. So I got benefits and I could do it hungover. <laughs> no, I just got to be there. Yeah. Wash the dishes, say goodbye. What, what do you, you know, when I quit that job, Kevin James wanted that job. We look oh, yeah. together. Tell me about that. You guys shared an apartment together or something. Was yeah. that like a sitcom in reality or would people be disappointed if we saw what went on there? Yeah, it was a, basically, I was I was washing dishes and Kev was working at Granger, a supply house, and we were doing stand up at night. And that was the community I came out of. And the reason I quit the job was I got my first weekend. I got my first weekend. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I was hosting in oh. Syracuse. I had to drive all the way up to Syracuse and I take off Thursday and Friday to do this gig. So I, and I knew three weeks. I said, I need these days off. They said, you can't have those days off. I said, I need Thursday, Friday off uh, in two weeks, whatever it was. I'm sorry, you can't have those days off. I said, okay, I quit. What? <laughs> <laughs> they went, he goes, you can't quit. I go, look, I'm leaving. The only question is, am I coming back? I'm telling you I'm leaving. <laughs> Do you want me back or not? <laughs> He's like, ah, his head started spinning around because it's a, it's a dishwashing job. I don't right. care. Well, so was it? An, you made enough on the weekend to not have to have the dishwasher. I was making enough. I have. I've always worked. I have. I provide his anxiety, so I'm always working. You know, so I'm always. I always wanted to keep a job that money in my pocket. You know, I, okay. I just always was working. So I said, "Look, I quit. I'm not coming back." So the afternoon, they came back. Goes, all right. We'll give you those two days off, but I don't know what's so important. I said, "I don't, okay." So they gave it to me. They gave it back. I got another week. I said, "I need these days off." I go, "I quit again." <laughs> again. <laughs> How long did this go on for? Was that the end? They knew what I was doing. I told them what I was doing. I said, I quit. I go, don't you people know this is not important to me. Right, so right. I quit. Yeah, yeah. No, that's hilarious. Okay. So then what? So then so- I quit the job and I, I took the, I forget why I quit the job. I quit because I was getting, I was getting work. I was like, all right, I got to take You got this. enough at that point. And Kevin, I just started with Kevin. Um, we were, and I met him. 
He's a funny stand-up. I don't think people know that. Like he had a special before King of Queens. Like he's a great stand-up. We all we didn't have enough money to do. We didn't have enough money. We didn't have enough uh, stand-up time to do gigs on our own. So what Kevin and I would do is we would do these college gigs where he did whatever stand-up he had, I did whatever I had, and we could do improv together because uh, we both we knew the improv games. We were good at that. So that's how we did it. And this is how important comedy was to us. The I think it was Super Bowl 25. You got to check me. It was the Giants are playing uh, um Giants are playing the Bills. Oh, that's a big one. Wide right. Wide right. Wide right. Wide Norwood. Right. Yeah. yeah. Norwood's wide right. We listened to that call on the side of the New York State Thruway in his old Hyundai in a snowstorm heading to some gig at Jefferson College. We pulled over to hear the call. Wow. Yeah. So for comedy was more important. A nooner. Comedy was more important to us. Than the Super Bowl. Than the Super Bowl. And yeah. that's your team. That's New York. I was, I'm a Jets fan. Uh, Jets. Oh. See, I'm a weird hybrid guy because uh, my father's a Giants fan, but I did okay. a report on Joe Namath in the second grade, a book report, and I went, this is the coolest guy I've ever met. So I'm <laughs> Holy shit. So I'm more of a, I'm more of a Jets fan. You wore a freaking fur coat on the sideline. At, uh, in right. Yeah. And yeah, I, met him. Cool. I met him with Kevin. Uh, on the on the sidelines of a jet game, I I can story I can tell you story off the air, but it was it was a good. Story. Oh shit! Yeah, definitely tell me. I love this the the clip of him where he's like, "I want to kiss you." And like, I think that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I think he quit drinking after that. I, that he did. That was that was. I, I was playing the Ontario Improv, and it was a Sunday night, and I think that was when Paul McGuire was calling the games, and I was shaving. Uh, I was in the bathroom shaving, and the game was on. And the first b- break, I'm like, that sounds like. I remember thinking to myself, that sounds like Namath, but it sounds like Namath who was hitting the head, you know, because he was scared. <laughs> washed my face, came out, I'm getting dressed. He's like, I really want to kiss you. I went, he's loaded. I go, Joe's loaded. <laughs> he was. Yeah. He was a happy drunk, though. Yeah, he was a happy drunk. Yeah, a little creepy drunk, but uh, yeah, not yeah. so funny for the female reporter, but yeah. Yeah. So, but then the, so you're doing the comedy for a few years. So it was 91 or 93. You had two like TV film jobs. Like the first one, I think you were kind of maybe like an extra. And then you had that one, the sitcom with the Taya Leone, which was there one of those where you walked in and you're like, Oh yeah, that was the that- one I, I had come out to LA to do. <laughs> I think it was tonight, tonight show. I was coming out to do stand mm. live on Fox. It was one of those shows. Right. So I was coming out to do it. And while I was here, um, I auditioned for that sitcom and I got it. And I'm like, Ooh, and Chuck, I don't, I, never, I don't know what I'm doing. I made it up. I don't know what I'm doing. So I get to the set and uh, Michael Tucci from Greece was on that show. Taylor Leone, by the way, Taylor Leone, stunning, nice, stunning. And, and nice as the day is long. Beautiful woman. Corey Parker was on the show. Just, it was amazing to me. I was like, and I got that feeling like, Oh, I want to be here. But I knew, um, I knew I didn't know. I knew enough to know I didn't know. And um, Tucci was a sweetheart. He pulled me in because I, you know, he saw me looking at him like you and Greece. You know? And then we started talking. He goes, come here. He goes, he goes, are you an actor? I go, listen, I'm a stand up. <laughs> I bullshitted my way into this. And he started laughing and he was taking me through. He goes, well, you know what you're doing. I said, he said camera right. And I just nodded. I got no fucking idea. <laughs> It's that you're that far off. You don't know what camera the, these terms mean. Adam downstage. And I went, of course. <laughs> Chuck, I'm 
not used to being on the stage with other people. I'm a stand-up. First, right. The places yeah. I'm working, a stage was a luxury. Are you kidding me? I'm right. working these bars in Connecticut and New York. I would go up to the owner and goes, what time does the show start? He would spit on his own floor and go, as soon as you turn around and start talking. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought maybe it would be a formal thing, like a light or a microphone. Yeah. That's the kind of shit. So wow. he took me under his wing a little bit just for that week, and I realized – I like this, and this is something you can study, and that's what I'm going to do. So that's what I did. Is that where you learned from the guy? What's his name? Stephen Book Stephen or Stephen Book, Booking? Yeah, book on, yeah, Stephen Book. Great book. Book on acting. I highly recommend his book. The Actor Takes a Meeting is another great book. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I met him, and I, I enrolled in that class, and that's been invaluable to me. And as a stand-up, too, because I was afraid, and a lot of um, the guys I started with kind of had this fear, too. Because we really didn't know what made us funny yet. That if you study acting, you're not going to be funny anymore because it's going to take away whatever that magic is. Hmm. Um, it, it's an unfounded fear, but still one I had. And I fought it for a long time to apply what I took to the stage. But now I think it's it's in the machine. So when I'm on stage and an idea comes out, other ways to go come out as well, if that makes any sense. It's like I, when I'm writing – I don't have to write just from my point of view. Every every comic wants to develop their point of view, but now I can hear the other voices. So they're more like scenes when I'm writing because I'm conditioned to look at a script like what's my part of the whole, not just what do I want to say on this topic. You know, you can you can put put things in a context. Uh, Does it another yeah. for stand up for me? Do the directors have a lot of flexibility when you're? I guess with TV, probably not, right? Like you probably just do a read through. And that's, and then you, it's go time, right? That you don't have a lot of time to try different takes and try different ways. Well, on a television schedule, not really. And then it depends like, cause um, that tail, that was um, three camera. That was multi-camera. So I was in front mm -hmm. of a live audience. You got to hit your marks. You know, you got to, you can try different alternative lines if they don't get the laugh. You know, the, the jokes change in, you know, when you do run throughs and stuff. So things do change and uh, you get to improvise once in a while. But you're, you stay in that structure, single camera, which is stuff without the audience, depending, again, on your shooting schedule. Mm -hmm. You got time to play, you play. You don't, move on, you know. Mm -hmm. And movies, you get a little bit more time. Independent movies, not so much. <laughs> Studio uh, movies, yeah, it will take a little time. And it depends who you are. Like, I just did a bunch of guest stars. And you know when a guest star, what was the one I just did where I had to cry? I did Criminal Minds. So I, had play, I played the father of a kid that was abducted. So there's a scene where I break down in the FBI office because my kid was abducted. I got to cry. Eight o'clock in the morning, I got to cry. And I'm the first setup because the, oh, the regular cast is like, shoot the guest stars first. I'm only going to get two takes. I know that because they don't, you know, I'm just there to move the story along. So you got to be up and running and ready to go. How do you, can you cry on cue? For that day, I could. <laughs> 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 yeah, you can, you, get, you know, you can use breath patterns to get the, the body to think sad. There's certain things that go with, that with sad. Yeah, you can, it's part of my job. You know, this is what, huh. what do I got to do? When do I got to do it? You know, but huh. they don't go, all right, cry now. You know, you got a script. You know what you're responsible for. And working yeah. with Dennis Leary as much as I had conditioned me as well because he's got that blue collar work ethic too. That's what Michael Lombardi told me. I had him on. He said, yeah, yeah like he comes from a, a similar kind of family. It sounds like. So yeah. it's very like he learned and he learned from watching Dennis Leary, how to like manage things and people. And cause he directed his movie. Yeah. Lombardi. Yeah. I don't know if you saw the retaliators that's come or it's coming out. I don't know if it's yeah. out. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was cool. 
that uh, it's a work ethic. It's like, and Dennis is like, well, you go. When <laughs> I remember once he was sitting in Video Village, and uh, he said, "Oh, I hate the way this scene ends. Make me laugh." <laughs> okay, and that was it. We would, we would. The direction we had was, he would. I remember when the guest stars came on. There was a, there was a. I uh, who was it? I'm trying to remember who it was, but we've known each other so well. We would say, all right, do this, do this, and then you 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 get the laugh, and then we'll go out on me. You break, you you leave the scene. Said, okay, so we come up to that line. I would improv a line, walk off stage, walk off, walk out of set, and we'd go out on Dennis's face, and it got the laugh. Cut. Everyone laughed. It was great. Moving on, you know. So wow. That's such a cool show. I just got into that after I had Lombardi on. And so I started, well, I'm not to your season yet. Cause I don't think you show up till season three, but three, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Is that show. I mean, is there ever going to be a show like that again? Cause I just, I'm watching this and it's like, it's in a way it's so refreshing to me. Cause I grew up in the eighties and nineties and you know, guys would call each other names that you can't say now. And so I'm watching rescue me and I'm like, Oh, this is like the old days, like guys being guys, like, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think you can now anymore. It's like you couldn't. It was. I was funny. My my. Uh, I was reading um, uh, a Mel Brooks book, and mm-hmm. they asked him uh, in the book. He goes, "Do you think you can make blazing saddles today?" He's like, "I couldn't make it then." Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised we got away with the shit we got away with. So, yeah, yeah. It's but it's 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 of 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 its time. You know, there's things of its time. I mean, you look at stuff now that you. You look at commercials on TV, you look at old cartoons, you know, it's the sensitivity. If if art's any good, it reflects society or it is a vision of what society could be. So, or know. was at the time. Yeah. Cause, and there's definitely times like, I, I think I rewatched Blazing Saddles because I was, I thought about that. I was like, that movie's such a classic. And I remember liking it. And then I rewatched it. And that was kind of one where I went, this is, there's some kind of cringy things in this yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah. Like rescue me, even rescue me. There are some things where I'm like, eh, maybe yeah. they shouldn't say that. But at the same time, it, it's such a great show. Like, <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, you know, it is, it is of its time. So. Yeah. No, that's, that's, a, that's a fun one. I can't wait to, to get to your season. Then you did nurse Jackie. So you did yeah, like 20 episodes fun. of that one. That was fun. That's when that, if, if I had to pick an escalation point, not a big break, but an escalation point of being an actor, I think that was it for me because I wasn't, I wasn't using my father as a structure, Chuck, because on Rescue Me, my character was a guy, an authority figure, but he was still a contemporary. He had one foot as being one of the guys. And because of 9-11, my character, the chief, was thrown into a leadership position because all the other guys are dead. You know, and that's just what happened to... Uh, to New York City, to the NY, the FDNY. So I was a guy that had to straddle that. That was my, what my character was. So in order to draw on an authority figure, I drew on my dad because that's who I knew, you know. So I had not a backstop, but a framework. Um, and to play a romantic lead, which is what I had to play uh, coastline with, with Edie Falco, it opened up a whole nother place of where I had to be when I had to apologize to her, when I had to do all these this this uh, grown-up acting, but not not guy kind of, you know, I, I had more more uh, more places I needed to go as an actor that that were afforded to me on Rescue Me, if that makes any sense. And to no, be, yeah. And so it pushed with, you, basically. Yeah, and to be in that space, with, and to push me with Edie Falco, fuck, you got to bring your A game quick, baby. Were you a Sopranos fan? Yeah. I, well, first of all, I lived it, so it was like watching home movies. <laughs> 
so but but watching her yeah just because is that this that's true like i have an italian friend he's like oh he's like oh every italian family has some sort of connection to the mob somewhere some kind it's always like my mother i was actually i'll go back to my podcast i had my mother on my podcast once and she was my great grandmother hid uh had a safe house up in the bronx so when the boys had to hide out you know they paid the rent and they came in and that's where they stayed and they cooked for them and god knows what else went on there <laughs> wow but yeah uh so my mother would you know my mother told me that story so yeah it, it is what it is you know um but as far as the sopranos uh the acting on that was just so great and she's just god is she good mm-hmm. wow yeah. just to be in the scene with her is just it's like when they say you're generous as an actor she is so open in there it's just like uh, it, it's difficult to articulate, but that, that's what the generosity of another artist is. When you, she, you're invited into that space, whatever the circumstances of that space are, she, she makes you, uh, she makes you, it makes it easier to be there with her. And we're both, from, we're both from Long Island. So a lot of the eye rolls and subtle body language, we drank water from the same well. So the, the, the connection was, uh, was, uh, was pr- pretty easy and immediate. It's not very subtle on the East Coast, though, isn't it? People are a lot more direct. I'm from the West Coast. I kind of like the East Coast better, though. Yeah, because there's no time for bullshit. There's no. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I know you have feelings. So do I. They don't enter into this. You're in my way. You know, it just, it's, it's, it's density population for one. You know, New York City, there's 8 million people on a 26 mile island. No one's got time to wave good morning. Someone's going to take a <laughs> cab. So, and yeah. it's weather. I think weather's got a lot to do with it. You got to overcome weather and shit. You know, I'm, I'm in Santa Monica right now. My, it's beautiful. I'm 17 blocks from the beach. You know, it's like, you know, the weather report in Santa Monica is it's gorgeous, slightly windy. See you tomorrow. That was it. You know, <laughs> so it's harder to is it harder to work in that kind of weather? Because I'm in Arizona and it's like sunny every day and it makes you want to go out and do things and not be in a, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's harder to it's a beautiful day. Let's take this day. You know, but not for me, because my head is just like, uh, you know, I need to take advantage of, of things. But. It's, I think when you got to overcome weather in you know, January morning, six o'clock, it's dark, your car's covered with snow. I got to get my ass up and get to work and it, at a job I don't want to go to. And, you know, so it, it develops a little bit of an edge. And you're on the highway with people that are feeling the same shit you are leaning on the horn. And, um, yeah, so it's a different kind of uh, exposure to, yeah, and you're more free with your emotions too on the East Coast because it's more accepted. You know, you can hmm. scream and yell and go, ah. That's just Adam. Well, that's just Anthony. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I feel like even what is. Yeah, I grew up in Seattle and I feel like it was so people were so introverted. And then I came to Arizona and (laughs) yeah, I think that must be. Yeah, people just kind of keep their head down. I moved to Arizona and it's sunny and people are so much more friendlier here. It's very And then I go to the East Coast. I've just visited there. But yeah, it's it's totally different. People more direct and people from the East Coast. They have that like kind of more personality like yours where you're more open, direct and. Yeah, this this is this is no time. It's like it's no. It's just it, it, your feelings aren't in this. It's what we got to do. It's more of a, it's more the doing of the moment rather than what you're bringing to the moment. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Is that harder navigating in this uh, woke culture, or whatever you want to call it? Like where people, there's a lot more sensitivities. It's got to be harder for people from the East Coast to kind of navigate, especially like old school men, like the like the people on Rescue Me, like those guys, old New Yorkers. I mean, they got to have a tough time. It's not. Well, it's funny. I was having this conversation with my wife. Um, the delivery system is different. You know, the delivery system is yeah. different. So the intent is not. 
The intent's not. I mean, hopefully, it depends on the assumption you operate on. Yeah, I think, look, man is basically good. I have to tell myself that. Otherwise, I'd kill everybody. I can't have this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. So it's 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 like if, you, if your intention is good, but your execution is because of whatever bullshit's happened to you or however you see the world, you know, you got it. But I, no one has time to deal with your bullshit, especially on the East Coast. Don't bring your bullshit to, 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 to work. Let's. This is yeah. what we're working. Um, so as far as people's opinions and feelings and stuff, I always look at it like we're all, we're all, we're basically good, but we're caught in this body, right? We're caught in this, the spirit is caught into this cell. So we're all in jail. We're all in this human jail. Behave yourself in the day room. When you go back to your cell, let your feelings out. If you're in the day room, behave yourself. You're among other people. You're all, you're going to get shivved. So basically <laughs> behave yourself in the day room. So everyone's yeah. everyone's walking around the day room. Going, I have feelings. Stab him. Stab him. <laughs> he's too loud. He's annoying me. Stab him. Yeah. So, but but you have to. I try to at least set an intention to treat people as I would want to be treated and respect someone else's feelings and and belief systems and everything. You know, my my belief system says I can't do this. Fine, good. My belief system says you can't do this. Well, fuck you twice. Now we got. <laughs> There you go. No, that's true. Do you have to do you have to adjust your comedy sets depending on like you're coming to Phoenix. So like are you going to do a different set than you would have done in California or New York? I, I'm not going to I might talk about different things depending on what I because I always like to walk around and I love the Tempe Improv. I, the people are great. Uh, the staff is great. It's one of the best clubs in the country. So I'm very pleased uh, to be to be coming back. And I always walk around and find something new to write about. And I always I always look at my opening lines are like, OK, last time I was here. Now I'm here. You know, it's it's. I just think out of I, I want to bring a fresh energy of we're in this together again. And this is what I noticed from the last time I'm here. So hmm. just to bring everybody together, it just when you when you're invited over someone's house, you walk in, you go, I love what you've done with the lawn. Even if you don't mean it, you've made, you know, the, yeah. the, you're, you're being invited over. So I will find something to talk about. And it depends. It's always talking about I'm not changing for a different environment, especially in a club. If I'm doing a corporate, you change because, you know, it's a corporate yeah. in a way. Sure. Anytime it doesn't say comedy club or theater, it's an away game. So mm -hmm. you just accordingly. You, no, you'll do some a little bit of riffing, like because that's one thing. Like I love is the roasts. I was yeah. trying to find. You've done two of the roasts, right? I was trying to find your clips. I couldn't find them. I did, uh, I, comedy Central still owns them because I did them. Um, which ones did I? I did Rob Reiner. Yeah, Rob Reiner and Justin Bieber, I think. Right. And did I do just? I know I was in. I was at the Hugh. The dog says Justin Bieber. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, so I was trying to find the Rob Reiner one, and I saw... I did Dennis's Leary... Oh, Leary. that makes sense, yeah. We roasted Reiner. I was, at, I was at the Hugh Hefner roast. I don't think I did that one. Oh. Uh, and I was at a couple of other ones, but I, I was a guest at a, a bunch of them, and I think I, only, I think I only did two or three. How do you write material for the roast? Like, that... that it's is it's hard. hard? Well, it's hard because you can't try it out. You know, you can't, you know, you can, you can try them out, you know, but the person's not there. And, and they're also difficult because there's no, whatever topics there are, depending on where you are in the set, a lot of stuff's been walked over and you see guys crossing shit out all the time. And oh. the only reason I did it was Jeff Ross asked me to do it. And I said, Jeff, I can't, I'm shooting a show. I can't, I don't have the time. He said, dude, Rose he goes, you can't, you guys, I'm busy. He goes, you're not busy. You're scared. I go. All right, you're right. I'm scared. I don't want to do it. I said, plus, I'm not a friar. He goes, don't ever act out of fear. And he went, bang, 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 you're a friar. I went, all right, now I got to do it. 
So I did it. And wow. I'm like, oh, push me. Yeah. That's so good. That's such good advice though. I, I've heard that from a lot of people. You got to push past that fear. Yeah. That's where all the great things are. Yeah. That's, I think that's, I mean, and, and it doesn't go away, Chuck. <laughs> you know, it's not like once you get really, thing, I don't think it does. No, you don't get nervous to go on stage anymore or anything like that. You still feel if you don't, if you don't get nervous anymore, you're not funny anymore. But not as not as bad. Like when I started this podcast, I remember like the second episode. I mean, I was freaking out. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, God, I'm so scared. And now it's a lot. I mean, yeah, I guess there's a little bit there, but I think it's more for me. It's like excitement. And that's a very close. Good. The, the energy is the same. It's just how you channel it. But good. The minute you stop feeling that turn in, turn off the microphone. Because you're not bringing anything to it. Yeah, no, that's that's really good advice. So how do you find new challenges and what you're I doing. Have life. I have a challenge every fucking day. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Are you going to do uh, more like uh, changing? That's that's life is always changing. And, and you are always if, if you're any good as an artist, you got to change, too. Well, yeah, because yeah, cool. You did all the acting and you've done the comedy. But the other thing we didn't talk about that I didn't even know. I'm sorry. I'm so stupid. I did not know you were the host of Top Gear. I mean, I've heard of Top Gear, yeah. but I never watched it. And I was like, oh, he hosted that. That's like a pretty big show, right? Yeah, well, that was fun. That was uh, for those of you who don't know the show. It's an automo automotive adventure, for lack of a better word, buddy show. Right. Me, Tanner Faust and Rutledge Wood. Uh, the show's run for 20 five years, I think in the UK. And we were the American version. We did about six and a half seasons of it. Went all around the world, Chuck. They flew me all around the world. They put me in these cars. that cost more than the house I grew up in. They flew me to Germany. They gave me the brand new Lamborghini, the hurricane. When it came out, they put me in the left lane of the Autobahn. They said, go. How fast did you go? 173 in the left lane, which wow. is fucking stupid because there's people going to work. It's not a track. <laughs> it's not a runway. You're right. Yeah. There's just like, it's but is that how, how fast do people go on the Autobahn? Because there's no speed limit, right? No speed limit. So there's just some guy in, in, in a Volkswagen rabbit just run, going to work like this. Boom. And this lunatic that sounds like he's flying <laughs> past him at 173. He's not even blinking. Because <laughs> they're used to that. Yeah. So, How many lanes is it though? Is it like two. is it? Oh, it's only two. It was two lanes. Oh, one. so okay. Which I was on was two lanes. I was like, all right, this is this is. Dumb, well, the good dumb. thing the rabbit was in the right lane then. I boom. <laughs> Dang. So, what, yeah. Which which show which episodes of that show stand out to you like is the most memorable? Obviously, that must have been one of them. What that else? Good. I I drove up a volcano in Iceland in a uh, a Chevy diesel non turbo pickup. So it was a slow trip. Um, that one with the volcano in Iceland was a big one for us. We uh, we went to Cuba was good. We did an episode in Cuba. Ooh, uh, like the fifties cars, like American graffiti. The last, the embargo was what? 61. I think the last car I saw was like 59. It was like a 59 caddy down there mm. and they have to take care of them because there's no pep boys. There's no O'Reilly's. There's no parts. They take the motors out of them and they put in uh, power stroke diesels cause they can get them. Hmm. So, and everything is Frankenstein. Every, there's a guy you go to if you need like a gasket. He takes old tires and a machete and he chops the rubber up. He's got he's got a, a compressor from a, an industrial freezer. And that's, that's his lathe. And he sharpens a piece of glass and he's cutting he's cutting by eye these gaskets to fit whatever you need to fit. It's, it's amazing. He was on the show. Wow. So yeah, that, that one, that, that episode amazed me. The journey episodes I really liked because it was, we would go, 
We would go camp. We did uh, the Rubicon Trail. We went rock crawling. Um, we went to Alaska a bunch of times, and those I like because it was we were all together. It was it was like a family. Um, Top Gear because it had to be. It was a hard show, man. It, there were no trailers. There was no craft service. There was just we were out on a desert. We're all we had going through the desert for like, you know, us and the crew. Yeah, I just saw I was watching some of the episode where you're in Arizona and you guys are testing out the different ones and you go through the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Oh, it was great. It was cool. Time. I'm trying to think if I got anything cool, cool shit here to show you. Okay, let me show you this. See that tachometer? Yeah, that's a tack from a 78 male Jeep that uh, I think I took a sawzall to. Uh, and cut everything off of it because we had to, we had to get, I cut off the roof and the fenders and had to get all the weight off of it. And I think we wanted to see if, if the engine would run on Bisquick instead of oil. I think we did that. I forget. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But I got a bunch of stuff. Uh, I'm a bunch of car stuff. Um, from the from all the uh, the episodes we did, I jumped a caddy about forty feet in the air, a seventy six Coupe Deville, and I, I took the badges off of it because I'm like, ah, this thing saved my life. So, did you ever get to drive like? Uh, did they ever have you driving like movie uh, famous movie cars or like Dukes of Hazard car or something like that? I they took the original. Uh, I'll say it was the Mach three. It was a sixty six uh, GT forty, the race car, the one that actually raced in Le Mans sixty six. I think it was. Uh, and they took it out of the museum and I drove it. It's right hand drive. And I only drove it six feet because it was a museum piece, but they, mm-hmm. but they drove it. Um, and uh, the guys from the museum with it, they opened it up and it's big block right here by my head. They started up, <laughs> flames are shooting out of the carburetor. Guy comes over and goes, Yeah, it does that. I'm like, Not by my head. So, <laughs> And I, I could only drive it on camera. So I've never driven this thing before, right? It's right-hand drive. Oh. Cameras are on. They say action. And it's 40 inches. That's where, that's where it got the name, the GT40. So I'm in the actual race car. I put my foot on the clutch. The clutch isn't really set up. So now my knee is actually in my chest. And I'm driving this car past the camera just to get the shot. Shift gears. Get it. Cut. Get out. Guys from the museum come over. Open up the door. They go, you did good. Most people stalled it. And they come in again. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, so I drove that. Uh, they took uh, Fred Astaire's 1927 P1 Rolls-Royce out of the Peterson because uh, we were doing a piece on the uh, on the Wraith, the Rolls-Royce Wraith, when it came mm. out, which is the two-door coupe, which was beautiful. So they bought that out so I could tell the story, uh, and I drove his actual uh, Rolls-Royce that Fred Astaire owned that the Peterson let us do. Again, right-hand drive, non-sync transmission. I'm driving pre-depression area farm equipment. Just <laughs> I'm surprised it still works. Yeah, it works fine. I told the camera guys, they go, all right, when I'm making any turns, I get second gear and that's it. <laughs> I can't, wow. I'm not breaking this thing. So, Have you ever broken any cars or gotten any wrecks? Or- I the shit out of a bunch of them. Yeah. What did I, I wrecked a bunch show of pays money. for that though. <laughs> yeah. Expensive show. Like that caddy at 76 caddy. I bananaed that thing. That's on the internet. Flying Coupe de Ville. Look that one up. That's cool. I pushed a V6 Mustang off a cliff in the Grand Canyon with a hang glider on it to see if I could get it to fly. Um, I made it, I made an amphibious boat out of a Boston whaler and a Jeep Wrangler. I think that's sunken Lake Ontario. In fact, I oh. know it's sunken Lake Ontario. We couldn't find it. Wow. Yeah. So that's cool. So your dad was a big car guy too, right? Yeah, that's where I got my love of, dad, of cars with being with my dad. So but I, he, I learned. But it. when that show started, had he already passed? Did he never get to see you host that? Yeah, never got to see it. That was <sighs> the thing. Yeah, never got to see it. He got, I was shooting a, I was shooting a movie in New York um, and my brother called me and said, Pop's in a hospital. Um, and I went, holy shit. 
and we went and we got, it was cancer. We got the diagnosis. And, and I remember, um, we, I, I, I went back to them. They were very kind to me. Let me run home. I went back to the movie. Um, and I remember sitting in the trailer and, uh, and thinking, I don't know how this is going to, he's going to be, I remember thinking he's, he's going to beat it. You know, I remember convincing myself, but, and I had got the call for Top Gear a couple of days after that. And then my father, I showed my father the clips online because it wasn't on TV. It was online. Hmm. It was all on YouTube. And I showed him the clips and everything. And they were all, and they were English, right? So my dad was like, oh, this is the Beatles. <laughs> so he got to, he got to see the clips and it was a long process um, oh. for me to get the job. So. He was with me during the process, but as his, his health declined, he passed away before I got the gig. But I like to think he was with me because I should have been dead a couple of times, Chuck. So I, I like to think he went. Eh, really? All the correct the steering from oh. from the cars. You're saying, yeah, from the cars. Yeah, I should. Yeah. Tell times. tell this tell my audience though the story though when you got the call of the diagnosis. I thought this was like this is one of the coolest stories I've ever heard. Like you're on you're working on the show, definitely maybe, yeah. and you're supposed to you get the call and you're in your trailer and you're supposed to go work on the show. And your, your co-star, Derek oh, Luke. Derek Luke, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was one of the most – this is one of the reasons that was reinforced to me that man is basically good. Met this guy at the table read. Hi, how you doing? Nice guy, you know. Got a call, supposed to go. We're walking to start a scene. I just got the call. Face is white. And uh, Derek goes, are you all right? I go, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm fine. I'm trying to keep it together because I'm still processing it, you know. And he goes, ah, I forgot something. He goes, can you come back to my trailer for a minute? And we told the, the, the stage manager, give us a minute. He came back. He goes, you're not all right. He goes, no. And I started breaking down. He said, my pop just got diagnosed with, uh, my brother says he thinks it's cancer. Um, Chuck, he didn't take a beat. He grabbed my hands. He dropped to his knees and started praying out loud for me and my family and my dad. I met this guy a day ago said hello at a craft turbos and you're not a religious guy i'm not a religious guy but I, for some reason that story is so cool to me that that story is I'm, I'm not a religious dude doesn't mean i don't believe in in some sort of guiding principle which i i like to call love some people call it doug some people call it something <laughs> else. Um, but it's just another human just showing compassion in his way. That was his thing. He was religious. So that was his way of showing compassion to you. It's cool. And you know what? He wasn't even thinking about it. That's, that's not what he did. That's who he is. I got to get that guy on my show someday, but I don't, think, I don't even know if he remembers it. I think that was Tuesday for him. For me, it was an act of <laughs> kindness that has, yeah. has informed, that has informed my understanding of mankind for him. I think it was Tuesday. Yeah. That's just who he is. Well, and for you, your role in the world as a comedian is to make people laugh and bring joy. And you do that. Uh, you get a lot of messages that people reaching out that they've, that yeah. you've changed their life. Right. And that's, that's, that's the nice part. Um, when it, when it takes on a bigger life than itself, I, I did a bit, one, one, uh, I did a bit in my third special, I think it was about my dad, uh, uh, going to chemo and cancer. Mm -hmm. and, um, I was very pleased that that bit grew up to be something other than a bit. I got, uh, not to be self-serving, but I got asked by um, a professor, Eddie Freefeld, to license the bit to teach as a teaching tool for Yale drama and NYU writing class. Because I go, the emotional turn in the bit was, 
you know, I, my father goes through cancer and I bring the audience way down. Yeah, you, the pause. Long and then the right cross gets the applause. I've never seen that in, in a stand-up routine, rarely. Do you have, you, you, you take it so seriously and there's this pause and you can hear a pin drop. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you make us all laugh. That's brilliant. Yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just proud of that because that, uh, that reached other people. And, um, and even on the podcast, even the stuff, you know, this kind of, this medium, you don't know, you have no idea. And then, you know, you're out somewhere and someone come up after a show and goes, man, that show got me through, you know, whatever it is, however the voice resonates, you're not alone. You're not sitting in your loneliness. You're not sitting in the thoughts that plague you. You're just, you, you, you reach for something. And, and if you reach for something that's on your phone, that that's my voice or your voice, it serves a bigger purpose. So awesome. I love it. Well, money in it, Chuck. What's that? We need more money, Chuck. Uh, yeah. Hey, I, I monetized my YouTube channel, so I'm making a little something. It's not a lot, but it's a, it's, I can say that I'm a paid I podcaster. One. I got one. We qualify. My wife is telling me we got to use I don't know. I, I'm going to call you. Okay. Yeah. I'll help you set it up. It's uh, as long as you, you have to get a thousand subscribers, which I'm sure you'd have way got, more than that. Got that. She says we got all the stuff we need. So. Yeah, it's just then they got to like get proof that you're in America and that you're in the city you say that you're in. So it's not some Russian disinformation campaign. So I don't know. Do I I look like a Bolshevik? I'm full of Bolshevik. (laughs) No, Italian and Jewish, right? Isn't that? Italian. 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 Is it? No, 100% Italian? That's it. Why do they get the Jewish part? I grew up in an Italian Jewish neighborhood and I I did a a couple of bits about it uh, in one of my specials. So that's uh, what it was. Yeah. The culture okay. Person, but yeah. Cool. Well, I'll let you get to your next, whatever you're doing. Cause you're, I know you're such a workaholic, but I always end up uh, promoting a charity. And I think your publicist said, uh, Leary firefighter fund. Firefighters fund. Yes. Uh, Dennis does a great uh, job for the firefighters. I got to know a bunch of them personally, just working on the show and, and, uh, they come out to see me do stand up. So if anyone's, I don't know when this drops, I'll be at Tempe, um, improv, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, 25 through 27 of November. And I always invite the firefighters out as well. So yeah. cool. Yeah. I'm going to try to catch one of those. I probably definitely will catch one of the shows. Cause I think you have like three shows that weekend. So, yeah. so please come up, say hello after the show. And I only ask you some YouTube questions. Okay. Sounds good. I'll see you then. Yeah, Thanks man. Adam. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you guys all enjoyed that episode. I know I did. Uh, sometimes you just click with the guest and I feel like Adam and I clicked and I'm really proud of how the episode turned out. So Make sure to support Adam by following him on social media, liking, sharing, and commenting on his content, and uh, go see a live show if he comes to your town. And you can support my little show in much the same way with the likes, comments, and shares. Uh, No live shows yet, uh, but make sure you are subscribed to the podcast so that you won't miss future episodes. We have some good ones coming up. Thank you so much for your support. Have a great day and shoot for the moon. Shoot for the moon.